Good morning, church. I want to introduce our storyteller for the day, uh, Nicole Bell. She uh, is somebody that I experienced as just on a journey, the journey of life, and I'm so glad we get to hear a little snippet of it today. Thank you. Tell us your story. Thank you. So I've been attending Evergreen uh, with my family now for close to five years. And given that Father's Day is next week, I thought I would tell you a story about my dad, how he inspires and influences me. And I want to tie the story about my dad to our local engagement partner, Big Table, and give all of you a call to action, all in five minutes or less. <laughs> so my dad's name is Hans-Jörg Eberhard. We call him Hans. He was born in Markdorf, Germany, which is a beautiful spot in southern Germany on the border of Switzerland and Austria. I don't know if any of you have ever been to Bodensee, Lake Constance, but it's a beautiful spot. Um, however, he was the fourth born of 14 kids, and he was born in August of 1937. So you might be tempted to think it's going to sound like a Von Trapp situation, but it was um, far from it. Also, the Von Trapps were Austrian, not German. Um, so my dad, he grew up in World War II, and it was very difficult. Uh, the family business was running an inn, and the 14 kids existed to be the operators of the inn and its accompanying restaurant. The girls were the maids who cleaned the rooms, as well as the waitresses and the bartenders. The boys were the farmers, the butchers, and the cooks. It was a pretty miserable experience, a pretty miserable existence. My dad, for example, was slaughtering animals by age five. He was a butcher. He didn't go to school if the work wasn't done. And I um, recall him telling me he never got a new item of clothing in his life. Matter of fact, there are stories about the later hosen worn by all nine of the boys. Um, so this is a slide that my cousin Alexandra, or a photo of, a, of a, uh, something my cousin Alex wrote down about all 14 kids, who they married, their children, their grandchildren, et cetera. There's some good names up there. I have a, um, Aunt Helga, an uncle, Hartmut, an Aunt Isolde, Friedemann, Siegfried, we've got them all. It's, it is like Von Trapp in that way. Um, so my dad only tells funny stories, and what, the first time I went to Germany to meet this giant family, I learned from my aunts and uncles that humor is how my dad decided to cope with the terrible upbringing that he had. Um, so I've only heard some snippets, and uh, I think that's because he shielded me from so much. But one of my favorites does have to do with dinner time. As he tells it, all 16 of the family members dined at the table nightly, and all 14 kids hated the meat that my grandmother served. Um, but they also had to clean their plates every night. And so while some of the siblings got really adept at kind of spitting out the meat and hiding it in their napkins, um, at some point in time, some of the boys started throwing chunks of meat at each other underneath the table. This went on for many dinners. The story goes that one day an errant toss hit my grandmother in the leg. Uh, she pulled up the tablecloth, wondering what hit her, and after realizing what happened, she made the ungrateful siblings eat the meat under the table until it was finished. That's a good humor story. There are, like I said, I don't know too many more. Uh, so my, what, suffice to say, my dad followed his younger brother, Peter, 
out of Germany and eventually to America as soon as he exited the German army, which was um, an obligation for males at that time. So in the late 50s, he just kept making his way west until he couldn't go any further than the beach in Los Angeles. That's where he met my mother, and the rest is history. So my dad's skill set, beside, there's my dad um, on his 81st birthday. Um, his skill set, besides self-deprecating humor, is cooking. It started at five years old as the family business. It was his role in the German army. It was a portable skill set, and it suited him. He still carves our Thanksgiving turkey with such ease that most of us don't even bother. We don't even attempt it. We're embarrassed if he's around and we're trying to cut something up. Um, so my dad, he never made much money. He never went to college. And at times, making ends meet was hard. My mother was the first person in her family to go to college. She was a teacher by profession. And with both of them employed, we sort of ascended to the middle class. So ways back, Peter introduced the church to Big Table um, at a time where we, he was introducing other local engagement organizations. And he gave a call to action if God was calling you to get involved. And I learned at that time that Big Table exists to see the lives of those working in the restaurant and hospitality industry transformed by building community around shared meals and caring for those in crisis, transition, or falling through the cracks. Immediately, I felt that God was tapping me to respond. You see, my dad repeated to me many times growing up, never, ever go into the restaurant business. He was in it, and he knew the facts. The restaurant and hospitality industry has the highest rates of poverty of any working population, 43% or are at or below the poverty line, the highest rates of drug and alcohol abuse, high divorce rates, unpredictable hours, high stress, no safety net, no nest egg. Big Tables put a system in place to get referred to people in the industry who are in crisis, and they help people from falling off a cliff. In Seattle, much of the care that they do today supports housing stability. So it costs about $1,000 for a big table to keep someone in their home. But it costs $40,000 in community resources for each family member once they become homeless to escape from that. It's such a worthy investment, and 89% of each dollar that big table collects goes to care. So I support big table to honor my dad and how he struggled mightily at times to care for us. With God's provision, we were okay. But I know today that I need to find ways to address vulnerable populations in our backyard, and this organization is a great choice. We all dine out. We're all blessed by shared meals and service with a smile. And so on Thursday, June 27th, there's a bulletin insert as well. Big Table's hosting a fundraising event on Mercer Island, right down the street at the Beach Club. Members of this church brought this event to Mercer Island for us, and Big Table is bringing their care services over to the east side as well. The event's a happy hour. It costs $30 to attend. You get a meal with your $30. So it's a great opportunity to learn more about this local engagement partner in a really fun way. And so I want to challenge everyone here who's over 21 to go. So by attending, Evergreen can help this event sell out, help raise $10,000 for Big Table, um, so I encourage you to get a babysitter if need be, buy it as a date night, buy it as a Father's Day gift, or just use this invitation to honor our Father in Heaven. I'll be at the table outside after service to help you sign up. You can email me or text me. Um, my information's on the, 
should be on the screen. Um, or you can save your bulletin insert and sign up at their website, bigtable.com. So see you on June 27th, and thank you for listening to my story. This morning our scripture reading is from the book of Revelation. Please follow along in your Bible or use the screens. I'll be reading from chapter 2, verses 1 through 7 from the New International Version. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you also have this in your favor. You hate the practice of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is the paradise of God. The word of the Lord. Nicole, thanks so much for sharing that story. I did not know that about your dad. That's a really cool story. Uh, kids, you are invited to Sunday school. And teachers, we thank you for serving today. Uh, if you hadn't noticed, uh, our church, we're trying to create two equal experiences from here on. And so we're going to have Sunday school in both services throughout the summer and into the fall and uh, hopefully into perpetuity. Um, I want to introduce our guest speaker uh, for the day. Uh, I'm really excited to have him here. And most of you may even have heard him here before or know of him. His name is Mark Meredith. He's a dear friend and colleague. And uh, we are, I'm always trying to chase how many, the number of books he's reading every year. Um, and uh, we've had the pleasure of working together in the area of church planning over the last three years as well. So Mark, come on up and uh, share God's word with us. Good morning to you guys. Um, I want you to know that uh, well, uh, the first love, did you hear that? And my, my theory is that when you hear about first love, just hearing those two words put together, that something should jump in your heart if you're fully human. It really, and that's, I'm going to kind of go on that theory. And I want you to know why this place right here, uh, there are special places in our lives that might evoke that first love thing. And it's really a big one for me. So it's very personal. And I'll start with... Uh, what, where I was here yesterday and, and to remember Bud. And so uh, a little story. This is my story to honor Bud. But it was um, November, it was Thanksgiving Eve of 1977. That was a few years ago. And that's, that's when that, that couple, let's see, how many, how many anniversaries would that have been in, in your life, the Kennedys there? So that was a while ago. But uh, I had become a Christian. I, I had committed my life to Jesus Christ. Really not sure what I had committed myself to, right? I mean, you never know until you get in there. And uh, six weeks earlier, and uh, the end of, or end of September, and I was very fragile, uh, especially looking back. I can see how fragile I was. The temptations were so strong. 
and I was tw in my early 20s at the time, and somebody had said something about Bud Palmberg and the convent church, and so, you know, okay, that's how much I knew, and, and, and so I, I put that, took that phone number out, and I called. I, worked, I was living and working on the island, and uh, I called Bud. It was 2 o'clock in the afternoon, and I said, I, can I set up an appointment to come see you sometime? I, I'm, I'm a new Christian, and I, I, need, I just need to talk to somebody, and he says, what are you doing right now? And so I came over here, right? Dropped everything I was doing, came over here, and I, I gave him a little bit more of my story. And uh, he, at the first thing, I can still remember the words he said to me. He says, brother, that was his, welcome to the Christian family. And he just kind of went like this, you know? It was, it was a, so this is a first love moment in, in my life. And then uh, six weeks roughly after that, in what is now the cry room, I guess. I see, that's what it looks like to me. Uh, that's where I met my wife, Patty. And uh, there were no tears that day. It was all joy. But uh, we, we uh, met there, and then 18 months later, we were married right here. Like, I'm, I'm probably... Right, uh, the orange carpet. Does anybody remember the orange? We were, we were on the orange carpet, yeah. And met lots of couples yesterday. In, as they had come to remember Bud, <clears throat> who had similar stories of being married. And, you know, they're all a little different, but we have some things in common there. So it's a special place. First love in my walk with Jesus, first love in my walk with my wife. How's that? So uh, when you hear those words, first love, does your heart leap an inch or two? And uh, do you remember? In, in your life. I'm going I'm to go back and forth a little bit between marriage and your walk with God. The, the, there's parallels there. But really, we're talking about our walk with Jesus, the first love. It's so important. And so we're going to explore that this morning. And at the end, I want to give you a chance and give me a chance to say, I love you. Those words that are so simple and so sweet to the soul. All right? So... Uh, that's the, uh, yeah, there it is. That's the outline I want to go to. Uh, I want to touch on the revelation of Jesus Christ and kind of get me caught up with where you guys are in this series. And then <clears throat> we were, uh, Patty and I were in uh, the seven churches of Revelation. We took a tour in 2006. And so I'm going to give you a, a little five-minute uh, tour guide thing there with some pictures. And then we're going to talk about the words of Jesus. So um, the revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ is how it starts out <clears throat> in chapter 1. And those words, the revelation of Jesus Christ, have two meanings. And I want you to think about this. The words of Jesus Christ about things that are coming, things that are to come, would be one way we would hear those words. The, the, literally, it's apocalypse or unveiling, a surprise breakthrough unveiling. God is going to open the curtains on the future, and Jesus is speaking that. But the other way to hear the words of revelation or apocalypse of Jesus Christ, the unveiling, is when it's unveiled, we see Jesus. And as you have, I listened to a couple of the messages in the series, that's what you're, ultimately that's what you're doing, you're getting the unveiled. Here's Jesus in all his glory. And, you know, just to see the, the ultimate reality uh, of him. So uh, I want you to hear that from chapter 1. And then uh, this is the, the map of current-day uh, uh, Turkey. 
And you'll see Patmos down there on the lower, with the blue circle. Uh, that's the island where John was when he received this revelation of Jesus Christ. And then the next closest red circle is Ephesus, which is where we're going to be headed here. But I want to start with Patmos. Uh, John, it's, it's kind of like uh, Alcatraz. in a sense. It's a, it's a prison island, but look how beautiful it is. We were there, just like John begins, he says we were, it was on the Lord's Day, and we were actually there on a Sunday morning, the Lord's Day. Uh, and we're up in the hills, and that's where, uh, and John was the bishop of Ephesus, and he is in exile, and he's probably an older, an older man now, the disciple of Jesus. Whoops, too far. Uh, this is the grotto, this is right over the, the cave of where you can see the mosaic there, of uh, John writing down the angel there and trying to write down this revelation he's receiving from Jesus Christ. So I'm going to pause there <clears throat> and walk us through uh, a little bit uh, more of what John is trying to get across here. He's writing these words to people who are under pressure. And, you know, being human, right? You're under pressure. And they had pressure, political pressure, uh, economic, social pressure as followers of Jesus Christ. And we have pressures today. So this is a word for us as well. It's for people under pressure. And uh, he's telling them ultimately that everything's going to be okay. That it, it, things are going to work out. And um, in the middle of, as, as John falls down, as he sees this vision of Jesus, uh, the risen Lord in his glory, John falls down to the ground in just a mess. He's a puddle. It just kind of melts. And, and then Jesus puts his hand on his shoulder and he says to John, basically, it's going to be okay. And just, you can experience that. It can be a first love moment as you visualize that. There's so much visualization in this book. So he says that to John. Uh, Jesus does. And then uh, what John wants to say to these people, though, under pressure, is that there's a greater reality than what you're experiencing. And we need to hear that voice. There is a greater reality than the troubles that you're looking at. When you see life with your five senses, let me tell you, this unveiling, there is so much more. And uh, for those of us who were here yesterday, we heard Bud's words, and I, I, I guess they were here on one of the messages I heard from a few weeks ago of him talking about that greater reality. And if you don't have that greater reality, your life is going to be a lot of problems. So this is John's uh, message to them. There's an ultimate reality. He paints pictures of that in these very uh, uh, out of this world, some of them. Uh, some of the, and, they're, and they're hard to understand. But the main thing that he's trying to say is that the convergence point of all history, everything comes together. All this stuff comes together as we see it. Uh, torn open, we see the convergence point, the teleological point, the telos point in the person of Jesus Christ. Everything comes together. Everything is held together by him now, believe it or not, and everything is going to come together in him in the future. And boy, does that breathe hope to the human heart that is under pressure. So that's my understanding of why this book was written, and I wanted to get that off my chest. How's that? Okay? Now, let's go to Ephesus. This is the, the quick tour uh, that I'm going to give you. And that is, uh, the thing about Ephesus was it was uh, after the, the, the time period that we're in, the first century here, 
there, sometime maybe 150, 200 years later, there was a big earthquake which changed the flow of a river, and there was lots of silt that came in, and so it was covered. All these ruins were covered with silt, and archaeologi- ar- if you're an archaeologist, you've had a field day because look at all this stuff. It got well-preserved, and it's, of all the places in the Mediterranean world, it's one of the, the best in terms of antiquity being preserved. This is a, a main street uh, that they've, uh, you can see walking down there, and there's, of course, lots of tourists. And uh, I want to take you to that building down at the end. There were 275,000 people, roughly, uh, populating this city. It was, of all the, the seven churches of Revelation, it was the leading city in that area. And this, uh, I missed the library. Huh. Maybe I got them. No, I'm going to come back to that one. Well, the library, I'll, I'll show you where it is. It's, it's the building down at the end, and that library is called the Celsus Library, and it held 12,000 scrolls. It was the third largest library in the first century world. So it was a, it, it's, a, it's a big city. And then uh, this amphitheater, uh, that held 28,000 people, which is it's a huge amphitheater. And uh, we had an amazing experience there. We were with our group, and there weren't many people around that day, but uh, you can see how beautiful it was. And we were walking around, and there was another group, and they were, uh, I think they were a Japanese group. And this woman, this is all a cappella, but she just starts singing Amazing Grace. And, And it took your breath away. It stunned me to hear that, and she sang the whole thing. And it's one of those maybe first love memory kind of things because it tapped into that. You you hear that, uh, you wouldn't expect to hear that, and there it was, and you're reminded that you're a child of God by his grace. Beautiful moment. At least, uh, for me, it was one of those special moments. And then uh, the... the goddess, uh, the goddess is the one on the, well, there, there's two goddesses there. How's that? But Artemis is the famous goddess of uh, Ephesus. There was a temple there in her honor. And uh, this, you can read about this in Acts chapter 19 where there was a riot. Uh, the, the people of the town were kind of jealous and they thought Paul was uh, putting her down or whatever. And, and so there was a big riot there. And then uh, the emperor was Domitian, and uh, he was a strong guy, so I tried to pose with him. And uh, he was the emperor, the emperor probably during the time of, of uh, when Revelation was written, so from 81 to 96 AD. And he was a very authoritarian uh, person and uh, probably involved in persecuting the church, some of the pressure that John is writing about here. So I wanted to give you that quick tour of Ephesus, and then we'll get into the words of Jesus. So uh, these words, he does this seven times. This is the first one, and the interesting thing is that each one has a pattern to it, and I'm not going to go into it all, but basically think of an annual review at work. You're going to hear some of the good things you've done, and you're going to have some correction. And each one of these seven churches gets a little bit of each. And you find out that Jesus is, is uh, big enough to both hug you and to give you some smelling salts, to wake up. And that, you know, you think about your life in, in Jesus, that walk with him entails both. So, uh, two things that shaped this early church that we find in the text. Uh, the first is that this was a church who, and this is true of all the churches in the, in the first century, they had to deal with heresy. 
uh, it was a real problem. You had these, uh, in the text here, it says, uh, I, Jesus says, I know that you cannot tolerate these wicked men, these false apostles who were teaching stuff that wasn't true. And then he mentions this group called the Nicolaitans who he also hates. Hates is a strong word. It says Jesus, Jesus also hates them. So uh, they were, th- that was shaping this early church, that they had to deal with these people who were putting out false, uh, fake news, or whatever you want to call it, fake truth. And uh, then uh, they also had to deal with persecution. So heresy and persecution forged the early church. And it says in uh, the text here in verse three that you have endured hardships and you have not grown weary. So Jesus is complimenting them on this. And they are a tough, you get the sense that they're a tough church, that they have, they're under pressure, but they're standing strong, they're tough. Now, what could the problem be if they've grown in their toughness, where might the problem lie? So um, Jesus, or I'm sorry, uh, John, the apostle, the same apostle, the, the writer of this letter is also the writer, we believe, of the gospel of John. And in that wonderful gospel, in the first chapter, he has this word picture, and, and it's so helpful for us to keep our balance in life, that Jesus Christ came full, in verse 14 of chapter one, John's gospel, full of grace and full of truth. Which one do you think the church in Ephesus is full of? Grace or truth? It's truth. They, they have had to become tough and hard and, you know, they're fighting. And uh, you think about all the, the things that, that go with that. Uh, one of the things that we know, uh, I'll just say this, the people that do soul care, I've heard this from many of them, and I, I've observed this to be true in my life, that if you can find a person's strength, you flip it around and you find their weakness. So in other words, identify where a person is the strongest and then you look at the shadow side and you see a weakness. That's kind of how you figure, it's one of the ways at least to, and if you think about it for yourself, if you have the courage to go there, um, you might think that's true. So my, my wife, I'll just use her as an example. I, I gave her warning this morning, I was gonna do some of this, so. Um, she is one of the most gentle people in the world. She really is. And she's so, um, she had, she's very soft and, and uh, warm and, and, and gentle. But guess what she has a hard time doing? Confronting people is really hard for her, right? And, and right, Patty? That's a hard one. Yeah, okay. And, uh, Although she's confronted me a few times, you know, okay, just to let, just to let you know. But it's, in, in general, it's hard. So, you know, you think about this, and, and uh, uh, people who are, uh, they really are, are good at multitasking, and they get things done, their to-do list in a given day. I mean, it's just amazing what they can check off on that to-do list. Ooh, but if you look at that strength, and you look at the other side, they have a really hard time resting. And just to rest and be alone, be by yourself, sit in a chair, receiving maybe from someone else. You see how it works? And if you're really strong in truth, maybe not so much in grace. We need the fullness of Jesus Christ. Uh, so how do, we, uh, 
the words are, are strong from Jesus. You, you've forsaken your first love. Uh, that word forsaken is also translated elsewhere divorced. I mean, it's a strong word. So how do we, I want to end here by asking two questions. How do we get in that place? How do we lose our first love? And then, secondly, uh, what can we do to get it back? Because that's really where we want to go. So how do we lose our first love? Well, when you're striving for truth, and I mean striving for truth, which they had to be. I mean, Jesus compliments them through that. It's not a bad thing, right? But when you're striving for truth, and that's the main focus, uh, you get tough, and tough is a good word, and it's also your heart can get tough. So I want to just share a little story. Uh, this was early on. I, I was one time in business, and then I made the transition to what I'm now a pastor, and uh, early on in that transition, I spoke at a church on a, it was a Christmas season. It was in our church in Olympia, and um, I, I, I don't remember. It was Christmas, and I was tying into some things, and uh, anyway, it didn't go over real well with this particular guy. Now, uh, he was a truth guy. And he had, this is the thing that I want you to hear. On his desk or, no, it was on his door at work. And he was actually a, uh, a chaplain. But on his door at work, what does a chaplain do? Well, they should be good at maybe one thing, right? Caring for people? How about that? I mean, it seems like that should be in your job description. On his door at work, there was a phrase that said, I would rather be right than nice. How would you like to walk into his door and get some chapel or chaplain? Uh, you know? Yeah, so that, that was his kind of model for life. And he had been trained in, in his, I mean, he had theological training. So he was, he was a truth guy. Well, anyway, I, I gave this talk at Christmas time, I don't know, tying in some Christmas carols or something. I don't remember what it was. But he came out to me afterwards, and he was just red. He was upset with me. And I, I, I didn't know what to do. You know, I was just trying to do my best. And, and I listened to him for a while, which was okay. And, and I just said something like, I know, I know these words I said, but uh, I said, Jack, his name was Jack. I said, Jack, I, I probably... I hear what you're saying, but I just want you to know one thing. I love God. And I, I think the Holy Spirit may have led me to say those words because it stopped him in his tracks. <laughs> I mean, it's the only thing I could think of that wouldn't just be defensive and get more words coming back at me. I love God. And yeah, I guess I could have done better. But truth people are hard to be around. If that's all they have is truth. And in marriage, uh, we've been married 40 years. I stood right here. and I was going, I was this way. Bud was right here. And Patty was right here. And I, I, I don't remember a lot from that day. I mean, you know. How, but I do remember the words I said in the vow. Bud let us write our own vows as long as he could approve it. How's that? Yeah, he wanted to have some control over it. I don't blame him. I do the same thing. But I said in that uh, to Patty, I said, I will love you with the same kind of love that God has loved me with. And I didn't, you know, I was a fairly young Christian at that time, but those are good words to say. Because I knew that God loved me. And I knew the quality of his love for me. Now, what happens after 40 years of marriage? I mean, you, die, you, know, you pay the mortgage and you do the, change the diapers and you do the dishes and you take the garbage out and you understand there's a shadow side to your spouse. 
She didn't, I mean, I have the microphone. She didn't get to tell you mine. I'm good with that. And not only that, but, you know, in our marriage, one of the things that we do, I mean, we really like to be right. I like to be right, and she likes to be right. And Google has settled many arguments, <laughs> in, in mostly in her favor. The score, by the way, is, uh, never mind, no. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, that's the kind of, that's what that truth impulse can do, and you get hardened. The same kind of love that I have been loved with, I have to love her with. I make that commitment before uh, people sitting here in those orange pews. I mean, and, and before God. And, and, and how am I doing on that 40 years later? Oh, yeah. It, the kind of love that, and this is the Thanksgiving, right between after I talked to Bud and, to, uh, and December 1st, because I know it was late November of that year, uh, I lived uh, halfway down the island, right near Island, I'm going to say Island Crest Park. Does that sound right? It's a long time ago. And it was, uh, it was a weekday afternoon, and there was nobody in the park. It was one of those ice-cold November days where the sky is blue, and the leaves are just barely hanging on, and they're as yellow and gold as you can get. And I remember walking there by myself in that park and experiencing God's love, that first, kind, first time, first love of God in a deeper way than I'd ever experienced love before. And it, here's, the, here's the edge of it, or the, the gist of it, is that it was a love that doesn't end. Because I had experienced love that ends. And I wanted something that was permanent. And that's what I, I heard, I, whatever, I sensed God's love in that way that day. And that's the kind of love that makes it through. I thought we were doing good at 40 years, but gee, I'm feeling like a, an amateur here today. 70 years, whew. But that's God's love. How do we get it? Well, we lose it. We lose our love. Usually, our hearts become cold about one degree at a time, don't you think? Usually, that's how it works. Just... Fortunately, Jesus gives us two words here to recapture that love more than one degree at a time. The first is to remember. In verse 5, he says these two words. The first is remember. Remember the heights from which you have come. And I'm doing that with you this morning. You have no idea how therapeutic this message is for me. Because <laughs> I've had to remember. Being here is so good for me. Thank you. Thank you. I don't know if you're getting anything out of this, but I'm getting lots out of it. Yeah. Remember the heights from which you have fallen. Remember that first love, those first love experiences that you have had in your life. Remember, you know, all, does the, when you're in a place and you hear somebody singing Amazing Grace uh, out of the blue, and it, it causes you to remember, or walking in the park, or whatever, whatever that thing is that, that God has used in your life. If you, if you don't remember that first love, you're not going to get back to it. So whatever it is for you, and if you're a Christian, you have it. It's part of the deal. There's no way you can, have, you can be a Christian and not have a first love. It's just, it's impossible. So what is it for you? Remember, it's the inward work of just slowing down and thinking about that moment or those moments in your life where God has poured something warm into your heart. And the second word is repent. And he says in verse five, repent and do the things you did at first. So repent is one of those words that we 
um, we have to try to find another, because it has, it has so much relig religious baggage attached to it, we have to think of other ways to say it, like uh, start over, uh, reboot, reorg your life, whatever it is that, that works for you. Turn around is, the, is really what it means. Metanoia is the Greek word. But it, it really is, to, to wherever you're headed, come back, come back. And it's about doing. It, says, it doesn't just say do something inwardly. It's do the things that you did at first. Make love an event. Do something that says you love God. What could you do that would say, I mean, would it be singing a, a hymn that used to be your favorite when you're by yourself somewhere? Just raising your hands in worship. I mean, posture is so important. Getting, getting our, our faith in our heart into our body, into our whole way of experiencing God is so important. How about the, when was the last time you were on your knees? I know, you know it gets hard when you get older. You get on your knees, you can't get back up again. But maybe just getting onto your knees and saying, and just these words. When was the last time you said these words to God? I love God. You. One of the things that came through yesterday, and I don't remember the exact letters that were used by Donna as she described when she and Bud would go to bed at night and the I love you stuff that happened in the bed. Uh, night, every night, they would say these words together. I don't know if any of you, it's only yesterday, but I can't remember, but some, some string of letters that basically said, I love you so much, or I'm crazy about you, I love you so much. But when was the last time you said those words to God, to Jesus? I love you so much. And to say them out loud. What I'd like to do right now, and this is how we are going to finish, is just ask you to do that. It's a very simple thing to ask people who are Christians. And maybe, maybe if you're not, this is a chance to do that for the first time. Make that first love connection, but let's just do that together. I want you to go ahead and close your eyes and we'll pray. Let's do that. We are reminded that Jesus Christ has made the first move. He's the first one to say, I love you. So can you hear him saying it to you? Not as a doctrine, but as an experience. Can you hear his voice? Maybe saying your name followed by, I love you. Can you remember a time when that was true? When you heard that voice? When you had that sense that he was right there and he was saying, I love you. Remember that. Attach yourself to that memory. Can you say those words right now? And maybe it is the first time, but so much the better. I love you, Jesus. In your heart, say those words. And then finally, is there something that, in the way of, of repentance, in terms of like doing something, do the things you did at first, is there something that you could do that would show your love for God? Oh, Lord, we thank you for the grace and truth that finds us in this place today. In Jesus' name, amen.